We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the debated podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Tim Stanley, who is a historian, a leading columnist for the Daily Telegraph, a contributing editor for the Catholic Herald, and is also author of several books, including the book that we're going to be discussing today, Kennedy versus Carter. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Um, so the first question uh, that I'd like to ask is, I know that you um, originally uh, wrote this book as uh, part of your uh, doctoral thesis, and I wondered uh, what first attracted you to this particular subject? I wrote this thesis in around 2004 to 2008, and at that time, American politics was dominated by the Republican Party and George W. Bush. And the big debate on the left was, uh, could a Democrat? ever win. Uh, and also, if they could, what was the best way of going about it? So what I wanted to do was look back into the past in which uh, the Democrats had had that debate and look about look at how they argued about this in the past and how they resolved it. And the obvious place to go back to was 1980, when Jimmy Carter was running for re-election. He was against Ronald Reagan, Republican, who would obviously go on to win in 1980. And in the Democratic primaries, I discovered that Jimmy Carter was challenged by Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy ran on a very liberal platform, arguing that Jimmy Carter was far too moderate, that he had lost the country, that he didn't have good leadership. Carter argued that Kennedy was far too extreme and was promising things that Americans either couldn't afford or didn't even really want. So it was a titanic battle between two wings of the Democratic Party. And I discovered that what the historians generally said was that Carter won because he was right, that Kennedy's ideas were out of date, uh, that the country was moving towards the right. It was moving towards becoming the kind of country that George W. Bush would later dominate. Uh, Kennedy was wrong, and, and, and therefore the future belonged to Carter, even though he, he lost the election in 1980. But when I looked into it closer, I discovered that the 1980 primaries were a little bit closer than people perhaps remembered them, that Ted Kennedy did much better than people remembered, uh, that he won not only primaries in very liberal parts of the country like New York, but he also won them in quite conservative parts of the country like South Dakota. I discovered that some of his ideas were very popular with the public, uh, that many people, many Americans supported additional spending rather than cuts. And I also discovered that Kennedy himself was quite popular and that at least up until late 1979, Kennedy was way ahead of Jimmy Carter in the polls. And, and this suggested to me that actually the 1980 primaries and the 1980 election perhaps could have gone either way. And therefore, that the debate between the right way of running a democratic campaign was far more complicated and nuanced than a lot of histories suggest. Now, one of the things um, that you mentioned there and is um, central to the book is the uh, reanalysis of the consensus that uh, Ted Kennedy uh, was wrong and that he, he wasn't a, a popular candidate. Now, if you read a, a lot of books written even by people who were close uh, to Senator Kennedy, um, there seems to be this sense of almost it was inevitable that he was just doing this just to say that, oh, he was following in the Kennedy tradition of trying for the White House, and he was much more comfortable in the Senate. Do you think that that was simply because he um, didn't succeed in his 
attempt uh, to win the nomination against Jimmy Carter? Or do you think that it's more to do with the way people perceive the character of Ted Kennedy, that he was a natural senator rather than a, a natural president? There's a little bit of both is true in that. There were definitely flaws in Ted Kennedy's character that to some extent put the presidency not completely out of his reach, but more difficult for him to win than it was for Jack Kennedy or even Bobby. But a lot of the, a lot of people's interpretation of Kennedy's presidential run is obviously written from hindsight. And from hindsight, because he lost and because he then became this lion of the Senate, uh, a lot of people therefore concluded that he was never meant to be president, couldn't have been president, and he was really a natural legislator instead. Whereas if you instead tell history uh, in the order in which it happened, it starts to look very different. So if you start in the late 70s, in about 1978-79, when the American economy entered a recession, and then later in that year, uh, when there was a far, two foreign policy crises, the Iranian hostage crisis and the Afghanistan crisis. Um, during that period, Jimmy Carter became very, very unpopular. And the polls show that Ted Kennedy was very popular. And one reason why he was very popular was because while people rated Carter highly on integrity, and they rated, rated Kennedy low on integrity because of the Chappaquiddick uh, uh, um, disaster, they rated Kennedy very highly on leadership. And the public agreed with a lot of his liberal policy positions. It's, it's, he only lost because those foreign policy crises gave Carter a bounce. The country rallied behind Carter and Carter was able to win so decisively the early primaries that he built a momentum that, that was then hard to beat. But if you were to tell the story of Ted Kennedy's primary runs in order, starting from about mid-1979, he suddenly looks like a much, much stronger contender than many of the history books suggest. Um, now, of course, one of the things that was crucial um, to Senator Kennedy's challenge was as you mentioned, and you mentioned in the book, uh, some of the seeming weaknesses of Jimmy Carter as president. Do you think that part of the reason that Carter was able to succeed in a, a post-Watergate era was also part of the reason that he failed as president, that he was seen as a, an outsider who saw the presidency as not being um, too involved with the, the grubby to and froing on, uh, on Capitol Hill? Definitely, definitely. Uh, the the high point of Jimmy Carter's <clears throat> political career was the 1976 election. Everything after that wasn't quite as good. And the 76 election, in retrospect, I think was almost a referendum on the imperial presidency. It was a referendum on Richard Nixon and everything in Washington that was perceived to have gone horribly wrong. And that year, Jimmy Carter was both an unlikely winner because Hardly anyone knew who he was, one-term governor of, of Georgia, and that was it. But that also oddly made him the perfect candidate because he wasn't tainted by corruption. He was a very devout man. He was a basically very honest man. He had a lot of integrity. And therefore, he was the ideal man to run if you're doing a referendum on the imperial presidency and on Washington. The problem was that once that referendum had happened and he had won, surprisingly narrowly, but he did win, once he had one, he suddenly found himself in control of machinery of Washington, trying to make it work. And he struggled to do that. And, and you could argue that having thrown out the imperial presidency, 
what the American people then rather paradoxically said is, what we really want now is a new imperial president. And Jimmy Carter wasn't that, and he wasn't capable of being that. And it's very frustrating because um, uh, there was a lot that Jimmy Carter got right about the late 1970s, and there was a lot about his presidency that was quite prophetic when he talked about the limits of what government could do. You could argue that that's a very conservative message that Ronald Reagan picked up on. But he failed to translate that into effective leadership, and he failed to make the Washington machinery work to his advantage. And for that reason, I think you're absolutely right. The very things that he got elected on then made it very difficult for him to run the kind of effective presidency that would get re-elected. Um, you mentioned the uh, imperial presidency there. Do you think that part of the um, tension within the Democratic Party at um this particular stage was partly because um, Senator Kennedy in many ways embodied almost this sort of American royal family who some perceived as taking the Democratic Party for granted and that it was their party to do with as they wish. Whereas there are others such as Jimmy Carter who felt that they had to take the reins away from people like uh, Senator Kennedy to ensure that the Democratic Party went forward. I, I think you're right in both personal and policy terms. Uh, Ted Kennedy wanted effectively to turn the clock back to the 1960s. And the Democrats were the party of the imperial presidency before Nixon came along. There's no, there's no denying that. They were the party of Roosevelt, uh, Kennedy and Johnson and the Vietnam War and the Great Society. So the, the, the attempt to build a new, uh, a new federal government that would have enormous power and would help to redistribute wealth and protect Americans at home and abroad. And Kennedy really embodied that project. Although he had begun, um, he, he was head of a very broad coalition and he had begun to reach out to those more almost libertarian, civil libertarian elements within the Democratic Party. Those people were also drawn uh, to Ted Kennedy. Uh, but you're right, Carter perceived that Kennedy represented that Northeastern royalty and that he was this outside populist champion against them. In 1976, uh, Ted Kennedy decided not to run for the Democratic nomination. If he had, he may well have got it. Arguably, that was the best year for him to run. He didn't because his son fell ill. And Kennedy, I think, for entirely noble and human reasons, decided he didn't want to leave his son's bedside, and so he sat out the race. Carter was always braced for the possibility that he would have to take on Kennedy, and a part of him relished it. Because, yes, uh, he did see Kennedy as the embodiment of that northern uh, machine, uh, that almost aristocratic form of liberalism, uh, that Carter, a man of the South, uh, and a, a more old-fashioned kind of populist, was really pitted against. Um, you mentioned um, Carter as a, a populist candidate there. And, of course, some of the... Um policies uh, that he advocated for in um, the 1976 uh, election weren't fully followed through. For example, um, he supported what would eventually become the uh, Humphrey Hawkins Act. But then when that came before the Senate, it was pretty much stripped out. Do you think that part of the reason that there was dissatisfaction with Jimmy Carter wasn't solely uh, what was happening in uh, foreign affairs, but was also his relationship with um, domestic issues. Uh, oh, yes, absolutely. There, there was a feeling that he had made a series of promises in 76 that he failed to deliver on. And he had to make those promises uh, because he had won on the back of a very strange coalition in the 76 primaries 
And the only way of pulling the Democratic Party together and rallying support was by embracing a, a laundry list of particularly economic ideas, such as the Humphrey Hawkins Act, that he probably wasn't personally sold on. Uh, and there is a it, it is said that when he became president and he asked for recommendations on welfare reform, he was absolutely infuriated to discover that every recommendation came with an increased price tag. Carter's view was if you're going to reform welfare, the whole point was to save money, not to end up spending more money. The liberals argued that the only way to, in the long run, save money was to spend some money because you have to help people to get into work. These are These, these debates about welfare are still going on today. Um, so, so Carter was torn between uh, that anti-government populism, which was partly about keeping spending and taxes low, which is something Carter generally wanted to do, uh, with, on the other hand, the liberal, more recent liberal populist uh, movement, which was about increasing spending and possibly raising some taxes in order to bankroll it. He could never, he could never find, uh, he could never bridge the gap between those two. And as a consequence, by the time you get to 79, 1980, he had annoyed both sides of that coalition. He had annoyed uh, the more fiscally conservative populists, but he had also uh, been, it was also felt that he had let down, even betrayed the promises he had made to the liberal populists in 76. Um, now, one of the things that is also a central part of the book the uh, differences in terms of personality and physicality between uh, Senator Kennedy and um, President Carter. Uh, and one of the things that you also mentioned that wasn't necessarily as much as a difficulty uh, for Senator Kennedy initially um, was Chappaquiddick. Do you think that the reaction that um, the public has to uh, candidates' private lives has changed from the 70s to now. I mean, if you look at um, in the 1980s, uh, Gary Hart's career was effectively ended for something that was not as serious as Chappaquiddick. Yes. Ted Kennedy was unfortunate. Obviously, the person who was most unfortunate was Mary, Mary Jo Capecini. But Ted Kennedy was unfortunate in that that particular scandal happened at a moment of growing uh, media power and intrusion. In the past, the media tended to put some distance between itself and politicians. It wouldn't report on everything. It would defer to them and it would respect their private lives. But post-Vietnam and post-Watergate, uh, Kennedy happened to go through that scandal at a time when the news media obsessively covered everything um, and the public had become far more cynical and skeptical about its political leadership. Therefore, you could argue that it, it happened at the very worst time. Um, equally, of course, he, he shouldn't have got away with it. And to some, some extent, it's surprising that Ted Kennedy uh, retained the sense of political and even moral leadership that he enjoyed in the 70s and 80s, despite it. He still easily won re-election as senator in Massachusetts. And although Chappaquiddick uh, dogged him during the primaries, and although it was often raised as a reason why people wouldn't vote for him, uh, nevertheless, it's astonishing that he still did very well in spite of it. You know, he still wins New York handily. He still won California. He still won South Dakota. He still wins lots of primaries in spite of the fact that some people accuse him of failing to save the life of someone, even possibly of having led, uh, been a cause of their death. So on the one hand, he, this scandal happens at a time when the news media is just starting to pay attention to what politicians' private lives are like. On the other hand, perhaps Kennedy 
benefits from a little hangover of, of I don't know if it's deference or uninterest in politicians' private lives. So it's both very difficult for him, but also I think he gets away with a lot more than many politicians in, in the 70s and 80s got away um, you mentioned how uh, Kennedy was able uh, to win uh, many of these uh, southern states uh, quite well. Do you think that part of the issue that the um, Democrats faced in the 1970s and going into the 1980s is that they weren't able to communicate a broad enough set of values to garner um, or maintain a coalition that had previously helped them uh, be elected in the past. I, I should add, first of all, he, he didn't win any Southern primaries at all. And, and, and that's no surprise because he was up against Jimmy Carter. Carter was a son of the South. More striking is that he won uh, some Western primaries as well as the standard Northeastern primaries. And, and he won in the kinds of areas that in the future would become for Democrats the way that they win the Electoral College. You win the strip down the West Coast and you win the Northeast and you win some Rust Belts uh, in the middle. Uh, but of course, Democrats from the 1980s onwards, apart from the, the Clinton blip, uh, would struggle uh, in the South because the South became so robustly conservative. But yes, th 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 there is this, there is a tension in, in the strategy debate uh, that comes after 1980 between do we try to win on the basis of offending the least number of people by finding the few things that voters can agree with us on and hammering away at those and effectively running on competence, which is the, the, the classic Mike Dukakis strategy. This is not about ideology in 88. This is not about ideology. This is about who can do the job better. Or uh, do we say to hell with that? It is a contest of ideas and we're going to make the case for our, our ideas <clears throat> And accept that they are universal in, and, and, and argue that they are universal in appeal. Realistically, of course, they're not universal in appeal. Um, and as we all know, uh, the, uh, if only white people voted, uh, the Republicans would have won every presidential election since, I think, 1968. Um, the reality is that the Democrats do rely upon this coalition of the poor, poor whites, ethnic minorities, well-educated, liberals. Um, so it's very difficult to talk about uh, creating a universal strategy that you can run everywhere on and win everywhere on because one probably doesn't really exist. It comes down to that question of emphasis. Uh, are you going to win people over on the basis of the least offensive option, or, or which is the sort of the Carter strategy, or are you going to win people over on the basis of really igniting and exciting them? And of course, we see that debate happening right now in American politics. It's the debate we had in the primaries. The Sanders people said the only way you will win is by saying to people who once supported Trump, don't do that. Our ideas are better. We will we will change your life in the way Trump promised to. We will actually do it and we'll do it for the better because we really believe in something. Whereas Biden's people are saying, don't do that. The whole point of Trump is that he's desperately unpopular, which he actually is. If you look at the polling, he's still quite a remarkably unpopular president. So all we have to do is be less offensive than Trump and we will win. So that debate has never quite gone away. Um, you mentioned uh, the uh, current uh, situation in America. And, of course, one of the uh, central parts of um, uh, Senator Sanders' campaign was universal health care. And, of course, uh, Senator Kennedy uh, was a great proponent of health care and wanted to extend health care. 
Do you think that healthcare in America is an issue that's ever going to be fully resolved? <clears throat> it's very difficult to resolve the health healthcare question, uh, partly because there are so many economic interests pitted against resolving it, uh, but also because it goes to the heart of the debate about what is the government's responsibility, what can it do, and what should it do. So that when you, when Obamacare was passed, uh, that ended up being challenged. Parts of it were challenged in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, so conservatives said, had effectively to redefine Obamacare uh, in order to keep it constitutional. So healthcare is one of those issues like guns, uh, like abortion, that divides people because Americans actually, they, they don't actually agree uh, entirely upon what defines the American system of government. There's, there's, there's an ongoing eternal clash uh, between those who wish to set very, very tight limits on it and those who think that in order to achieve the promise of America, sometimes you need a, a, a more powerful government that can deliver rights to people. So, so that, that's why I don't think it'll, it'll ever quite go away. The interesting thing about Kennedy's fight for healthcare reform in the 70s is that the debate they had then is very similar to the debate within the Democratic Party today over how much do you try to get. And Kennedy and his supporters came down on the side of saying, you should try to get as much healthcare reform as possible. You should move towards a national health insurance scheme. Carter's people were not opposed to healthcare reform. They just said, be realistic. Talk about what can be afforded, or what we politically can sell to the public. So Carter came down on the side of things like the control of hospital costs. So as with the debate over what is the general strategy for the Democrats, so you have this debate within healthcare. Do you argue for everything on the basis that that is what is just? Or do you argue for what is practical on the basis of that is what, within the American system, Democrats can reasonably expect to achieve? Uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been uh, great uh, to talk to you about the book. And I've got one final question I'd like uh, to ask. Uh, Representative uh, Joe Kennedy is um, currently uh, in contest uh, with Ed Markey to become the uh, Democrats uh, nominee uh, for the Senate seat in uh, Massachusetts. Do you think that there will ever be a, a future Kennedy presidency? It's entirely conceivable, um, partly because the Kennedy name still has a tremendous amount of power and glamour. Uh, but also because American politics is surprisingly aristocratic. When you consider that uh, the last, the previous 20 years was essentially a fight between the Clintons and the Bushes, um, and, 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 and when you, you think now about the remarkably monarchical behavior of the Trump family, uh, the way in which they, they have accelerated, it was always there, but they've accelerated uh, turning the, the presidency into a family business. It, it, it we always used to think it was paradoxical that the Americans loved families like the Kennedys, but it might actually be that it's, it's some ingrained part of the American character to have to have a role for these great families. And for that reason, I'm, I'm convinced in the future we will have another Kennedy presidency. Um, for some reason, Americans can't get over them. Well, uh, I think that that's something that certainly some of our listeners uh, will agree with. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. The pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to the podcast. Don't forget that you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or YouTube. You can follow us at Debated Podcast on Twitter, like us, Debated Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to email us, either about appearing or making a comment or reaction to the episode you've heard or any other episodes, then email us thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.